Good morning, everyone. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the December 10th, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. Today is Human Rights Day. Maybe something that basic could get more than just a day of commemoration, maybe a month, maybe how about folks a whole year? And well, they should be on this uh, this day of human rights. They're congregating in honor and tribute to Nelson Mandela, still in in Johannesburg, actually in Soweto uh, Township outside Johannesburg. Leaders from all around the world are gathering, paying tribute to him. Today, though, before we do our tribute as well, we'll start with Charles and Mary Lee Black, the honorable pair advancing the local charter of the Brady for Prevention of Gun Violence as we take stock of a year after the Shady Hook Elementary shootings. Then we're going to complete the show with my guest, Linda Beal, co-founder and director of the Amy Beal Foundation, who will consider the legacy of Nelson Mandela. Her extensive work in South Africa uh, over the last two decades has availed her privileged connections to who have understood Nelson Mandela's pragmatism and his contradictions. We'll, we'll do our best to cover some of that. Remarkably, both of my guests, the Blacks and the Beals, Linda Beal, now since she survives her husband Peter, both of my sets of guests have been moved to do what they do after having lost a child in a violent death. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a station break. And hopefully all the selections that you'll hear from the rest of the show are commemorations of our great COSA leader, Nelson Mandela. Stay with me. Thank you. That's Miriam McCaba, and it's such a fitting, fitting sound. We're going to use that theme there from that joyous piece is where we're going to hope to send off the South African society. So first, we're going to turn to my guests, the Blecks, Mary Lee and Charles Bleck. Welcome back. As I said, it's nearly a year since the massacre in Newtown, Connecticut, a massacre it was. And despite the efforts of Connecticut's local media to get an idea of the motive for such a travesty. We have really little or no understanding about motives. We are even perplexed about the household where the mother and son, victim and perpetrator, resided. And with Newtown, most of us thought that that was a moment, the moment when the tide would change concerning the terms of manufacturing, selling, and owning, owning firearms. To cover this with their inestimable thoroughness are my first guests today, Charles and Mary Lee Black, the co-chairs of the Orange County chapter of the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence, which educates, mobilizes communities to advocate for sensible, responsible gun laws, regulations, and public policies at the local, state, and national levels. They come back to the show from Orange, Southern Orange County. Welcome again, Charlie and Mary Lee Black. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Claudia. Well, we are essentially one year after the Sandy Hook elementary shootings. It depends on where we are looking. The states made some inroads. The federal government is lagging considerably behind. What are your general impressions from our status quo December 10, 2013? 
Well, I'm quite hopeful, although I believe that uh, collectively as a, a nation, uh, we are disappointed in Congress. However, at the state level, there has been unprecedented activity. Uh, we have uh, five states that have strengthened their regulation of unlicensed uh, firearm sales by requiring background checks. We've had four states that added requirements that owners report lost and stolen firearms to police, which, by the way, California <clears throat> has uh, failed to do that. The governor vetoed that uh, bill. We've had three states that enacted laws to strengthen their record-keeping and background check requirements for ammunition sales, and I can tell you that ammunition is going to be a focus next year in our state of California, and that's exciting. Uh, and we have uh, four states that have uh, strengthened existing restrictions on military-style assault weapons, and additional five states added or strengthened existing restrictions on large-capacity ammunition clips. So, you know, the states are going to drive and put pressure on Congress. And I can tell you, uh, after Sandy Hook, our um, membership line was flooded with people wanting to be on our mailing list. And uh, we have some new organizations in, in our Orange County that are focusing energy and efforts on gun violence prevention. And we have some new state uh, and federal legislators who are uh, stepping up to the plate. Uh, uh, so I, I'm, I'm quite uh, optimistic. It's always sad that this comes after a tragedy. Well, Claudia, I overall, 21 states enacted legislation. Eight of those states were strong. In California, we put 17 bills on the governor's desk. He signed 11 of those. And states even like Florida and Missouri and Texas were actually moved to take action. So, yes, it has been a groundswell, and we believe it will percolate up to the federal Congress, maybe after the 2014 election, but the states continue to move forward, and we're pleased about that. Well, I, I want to interject, back, walk this back one moment. I knew that we were in for a, uh, a, an extension of the business as usual when I heard within maybe one week of Sandy Hook, when I heard California Senator Barbara Boxer say, well, let's wait before we start debating this. Let's hear what the NRA is going to be telling us this Friday morning. So it was like they really uh, were, she was conceding a huge amount of leverage to one organization, which um, demographically, I understand, has a, 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 a decreasing sort of a demographic supporting them. So I thought, wow, this is, um, this is telling us a lot that Barbara Boxer is, is giving such deference to them. And that, and that played itself out in the federal legislative arena, as we did see. Yes, and that was, uh, that was unfortunate. The difficulty is that, as you're aware, there's 4 million members of the National Rifle Association, but that's a very small percentage of the overall gun owners in America. And even the National Rifle Association, 80% of its membership, wanted universal background checks, which the Congress could not move on. And the bottom line is that we concede too much to these folks. We are the majority, and we need to speak up. I appreciated your introduction about 
we're working for responsible gun laws. One of my major complaints is that the National Rifle Association is the ventriloquist, and the press, they are repeating this idea of gun control. And it's not control, Claudia. It's just sensible policies that will help save lives. I mean, we have to ask ourselves a question. How many children must die before that we realize that's too many? And they're ventriloquist for their also for their membership. I um, I actually I heard two very interesting things from an NRA member about a month ago. That one item was that gun users, violent gun users, will they they will perpetrate their crime in a state they know has strict gun laws. They feel like the strict gun laws, or the rationale was with where strict gun laws are, there will be less gun ownership, there will be a more vulnerable uh, population that this perpetrator could wreak havoc. That was one bit of Kool-Aid that was being uh, sampled or voluminously taken in. And the, uh, I, well, it was, I mean, it was amazing. And the other was, it was about taking away their guns. That's, I think, how the NRA is able to rally this kind of reaction from their affiliates. It's a, And I, I noticed that it's really not that, that the equation is really quite different. It's about what kinds of sales are going on, tracking the sales, restricting the sales. It's not about repossession. And it, I mean, it's, it's a voluntary program in many cities, and people do come forward. But those two points, I thought, were... Uh, uh, were points of view that only the NRA can dispense, and only their listeners are going to be, be the ventriloquists for that that disposition. So it's if you actually look at the facts, first of all, with the Heller and McDonald United States Supreme Court decisions, there is a constitutional right to have a handgun in your home for the purpose of self-defense. So when they say we're going to take away guns, that just simply is not this constitutional status at this point in time. The other thing is about, you have to understand, in California, we scored highest on the Law Center and Brady scorecard for responsible gun policies. And in a 20-year period from 1990 to 2010, our gun mortality rate went down 52%, which was 24% greater than the national average. So for them to say that, if we don't have, what they're really saying is a, Polite, an armed society is a polite society, and if that were the case, Claudia, then the United States would be the most com- the most polite society in the world. But unfortunately, our gun death rate is 12 times greater than the next 25 industrialized countries combined. So ranking. you just simply have to look at the facts. Also, you know, we have to follow the money. Some of these outlandish uh, remarks and statements are not backed up by fact. But they are very effective in their fundraising. If you read the NRA's fundraising literature, it's full of they're coming to take your guns away. You've got to give money to us so we can prevent that from happening. That is not reality, but it does fill their coffers up with a lot of money, not only from their members. However, the real fundraiser is the uh, corporate gun uh, manufacturer. They fund the NRA, and there's a lot of big bucks there. And unfortunately, in Congress, uh, money talks. Well, as as you pointed out in the the report card that was also provided by the um, we get the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, that the where the regulations increase, the gun deaths 
decrease. And that's it's over and over mentioned in your uh, like in the top 10 most restricted states uh, with the, the states with the most restricted uh, gun policies. So it's a very simple philosophy, Claudia. We want to keep these dangerous weapons out of dangerous hands. And there isn't any reason why all of us cannot come together and agree with that one simple statement. But we want to make it clear. In California, we have gun shows, uh, but we require a background check on every gun transfer slash purchase. Uh, but we still have gun shows. Uh, we have a thriving uh, gun business, so to speak, where, uh, you, you know, I don't even... Uh, I don't use that word restrictive gun laws. We are regulating for public safety, and that does not preclude people who want to own guns from doing that as long as they're not in a prohibited category because the, the focus here is on safety. And for those of you who have joined us on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming at, uh, let's even throw it in there, gun shows and uh, legislative uh, lobbying uh, uh, alleys, uh, uh, hallways on the web at KUCI.org. My guests are Charles and Mary Lee Bleck of the Orange County chapter of the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence. They're the co-chairs. And we're talking about now the report cards. We're talking particularly about California law and uh, in Regulating, as we say, not restricting necessarily uh, gun uh, sales and gun ownership. It's the two sides of the equation. So California's Governor Jerry Brown hewed to a, a centrist position on what he did. There were a number of things he did not sign. Um, the criticism about the uh, mental health component not figuring more into gun ownership restrictions. What did you want to weigh in about that as we we're going to go through a specific state um, state case studies here in this last legislative session? Well, first of all, we have to thank and acknowledge the governor for signing 11 of the 17 bills. There were some significant bills that he did sign. Uh, obviously, would have, we would have enjoyed him signing all 17 of them. However, uh, he does have his reasons, and we'll just move forward. Uh, it helps us to try and understand when we look at his veto messages so we can better craft these laws in the future yes. so that they will be passed. Um, we're very excited about a program that's going to come out. It was a bill that was in the, in the Senate this year and uh, by Senator DeLeon dealing with ammunition registration. And uh, we have been working, his office has been working with the governor's office to craft language. And we look for that bill to come out in just another month or so. And we look for a uh, speedy approval and a signature by the governor, which will move us really forward. Um, California is unique, Claudia. We have a, something called the APPS program, Armed Prohibited Persons System, which means that we keep records of purchases so that a person at one point can be legally able to purchase a firearm and then later on be convicted of a felony. We can cross-check that and then go and we can repossess those particular weapons because they shouldn't have them in the first place having been convicted of a felony. Being able to do that, one of the ways that we're able to track this efficiently is these folks who aren't supposed to have guns actually show up and buy huge amounts of ammunition. So by being able to cross-check the ammunition purchases, we will be able to also make our streets safer by keeping these weapons and these bullets out of dangerous hands. Amen. 
Well, I, I want to uh, move into what happened because I think a lot of people are wondering, so when's Colorado getting addressed here on the show? And it was one of the most salient state scenarios where the consequences of the legislators taking the lead and the, it was combined with the fact that voters uh, who supported those legislators, those voters did not turn out during the recall to support those legislators. And so the results with respect to the composition of the legislature as well as state law uh, may be may change. So uh, and Colorado didn't get that high of a of a, a mark on your scorecard. But um, what kind of blowback do you think uh, could be occurring? Um, what is significant is it didn't affect our California legislatures at all. And what you have to understand about the Colorado vote was that first of all, only fifteen percent of the voters in those districts exactly. turned out, and it was roughly. Seven and a half percent in favor and seven and a half percent against, which I would hardly call that a mandate. And in a recall election, unfortunately, Claudia, you're aware that we just don't get a large turnout. Um, it's always bothered me on another note that here in the United States, we get excited about a 30 or 35 or 40 percent turnout of the eligible voters, when in some countries where they know their vote will never count, people stand in line for hours upon hours to be able to vote. So I, I, I'm this unfortunate. We should make it, well, my own personal opinion is we should make it easier for people to register and vote, not like they're doing in the southern states, making it more difficult and try to exclude people who think like we think. But the bottom line is that was not a mandate. That was a, they picked on the low-lying fruit, and they picked on an area, a time when it would be an extremely low turnout, and having 7.5% of the voters in those districts say yes and 7.5% say no, and only having a few votes in between those deciding that is simply not a mandate. I'm very proud and pleased of our California legislature because it did not phase them at all. They passed a record 17 bills, yes. and they put them on the governor's desk, and that's what's significant. And we're going to have significant and important bills again this next session that I'm pleased to look at and figure that the governor will sign and move us even further into the lead. We have the most responsible gun laws in the country, and we're going to make them stronger. And uh, thank you, Charlie. And the, with the other states that you mentioned, Florida, Missouri, and Texas, and the 21 other total states that did uh, put up some uh, new regulations, that they're, they're not going to be, ex what kind of retribution are they experiencing in that? We've had nothing but positive reports, Claudia. When you have to understand that in California we already have universal background checks and it hasn't deterred or bothered or cut down the gun sales or the gun shows, and when you have 90% of the public saying, we like the California law, we want universal background checks, we want to, cut, we want to close the gun show loophole, and even 80% of the National Rifle Association membership approves of that, that's a very positive and strong statement. And you have to understand that there is a disconnect between the leadership, the board of the National Rifle right. Association, and their membership. And if you look at their board, it's composed of mostly gun manufacturer reps. And when they create fear and when they create paranoia, they create gun sales. And that's what their goal is. It's to simply profit over public safety, and that's a shame. Well, but, yes. you know, in, in all of this mix, uh, it is a, uh, an important issue is that we know the poll, from the polling that what universal uh, background checks is well supported by the American people. The disconnect is not getting Congress to do the wishes of the population, and that is the problem. 
And you can bet that uh, everyone who cares about this issue is working very hard to increase the voice of those who feel like we do. I, I think it's very important to note that our constituency uh, cares about a lot of issues. We care about elder abuse, domestic violence, about education, about the arts. There, it's a broad spectrum of interest that compose our constituency. Our opposition is very uh, single issue. Yes. And so we do have uh, uh, to recognize that there is a problem in amplifying our voice in a very focused and targeted way to bring the elevation of responsible gun policy to our Congress. I don't think we do ourselves any favors by not recognizing that issue, and that's why I'm so pleased that you have invited us to be a guest because this helps educate the public that they are not alone in their thinking. They, they actually are part of the majority, and we have a responsibility to elevate our voices and make this issue so important that uh, it, it will allow our uh, electeds to uh, shun uh, the dollars that come into their coffers from the, the corporate gun lobby and industry and do the, the will, the bidding of the people. And from, from the report card, I guess we can take the, uh, the, the list of elements that people can bring up in the, the, their um, entreating their legislators on the federal level that the, the elements are background checks, uh, other regulation of sales and transfers, gun owner accountability, and firearms in public places. And we know that uh, Charles Schumer, the senior senator in New York, is trying, he's working like crazy to keep that one amendment in the proposed uh, pending legislation now for a metal element to be a part of the plastic firearms so that they are always detectable. But that's also uh, in peril. So there, there's something there to uh, for, for listeners uh, to mobilize around and uh, support him as he um, struggles to, to keep that amendment in the legislation. So let's now take this opportunity as we close this part of the show to let people know that on Saturday there will be a memorial gathering in Irvine, and I'm going to list all the other places on Saturday morning in California that this is to honor the victims and to rededicate people to working to reduce gun violence in this country. The folks, you're not alone if you're turning on Irvine. You know you're joining with others in San Francisco, Oakland, Fremont, San Mateo, Foster City, San Jose, Sunnyvale, Sacramento, Stockton, Modesto, Fresno, Santa Barbara, Pasadena, Los Angeles, Santa Monica, Rialto, and San Diego. And so I, I know the Blacks were going to be there. It will be at the Irvine United Congregational Church at... I do have the address here at 4915 Alton Parkway, where they'll begin at 915 and the bells, the ceremonial bells will be rung at 935 our Pacific Standard Time. And why don't you tell us uh, what what you plan on um, presenting there as we close? Basically, we have we've had an excellent turnout. We'll have four members of the religious community. We're pleased that we're going to have Bishop Bruce of the Episcopal Church of the Los Angeles Diocese there for some remarks. And we will have a rabbi, we'll have a member of the Islamic and 
Oh, my goodness. I'm having a senior moment. Oh, no. That yeah. Likely other congregations, so be, other civic... Be widespread. We will have the bell ringing ceremony, and then we will have an opportunity for people who also experience the loss to ring the bell themselves, and then yes. we will have a ceremonial placing of bells on a tree in memory of. It's a non-political gathering. It yes. will be very solemn. It will be very respectful, but it will allow us to remember and an opportunity to recommit. It'll be a very short ceremony. Uh, it will be done basically within a half an hour, but we are uh, very pleased to be joining not only all those places that you mentioned in California, but across our country. Yes. It's very important to remember uh, Sandy Hook Elementary and also uh, give everyone an opportunity to remember their loved one who has been lost to gun violence. So. We cordially invite everyone uh, to uh, attend and be a part of this very important ceremony. And if you want more information, our email address is orangecountybradychapter at gmail.com. Our telephone number is uh, 949-206-9676. Please call if you have any concerns or if you wish flyers. We hope to see everyone there on Saturday at 9.15 at Irvine United Congregational Church. Anybody streaming live, there's also the, the website BradyCampaign.org for locations uh, near you. If you're not in California, I'd love to know if people are streaming this show somewhere else in the country. And uh, we'll there the, they'll be joined, the, the Blex, with also Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, Citizen, South County Citizens Against Violence, uh, among besides the Brady Campaign. So uh, Charles and Mary Lee Bleck of the Orange County Chapter of the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence Co-Chairs, thank you, both of you, for being on to the show today. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you, Claudia. All right. Well, with this little township jive, we're going to call up uh, Linda Beal shortly and bring her on. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with her. Linda Beal is the mother of Amy Beal, who was killed 20 years ago in the Gugaletu Township outside of Cape Town, as Amy prepared to return to the States after researching women's role in budding democracy in South Africa. Amy's parents carried on, and Linda Beal, her mother, who survived the husband, Peter Beal, is the co-founder and director of the Amy Beal Foundation. We're so fortunate to have her on shortly to talk about the family's legacy as we examine Nelson Mandela's legacy. Don't go away. That was none other than a cosa. Has had to be Koza because of uh, Madiba himself was a, a member of the Koza tribe. <clears throat> Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guest for the remainder of this hour is Linda Beale. In this program's tribute to Nelson Mandela, we'll also pay tribute to the Beale family, whose own legacy is intertwined with the great elder statesman. Amy Beale, who at the age of 26 was within days of returning home from South Africa. She was beaten and stabbed to death by four affiliates of a militant wing of the Pan-Africanist Congress. 
working through their grief around the void of their daughter being killed by those who stood to benefit from her activism, Linda and Peter Beale understood that something even larger, that something being South Africa's budding democratic project underway in 1993, was where they should focus their energy and thereby redeem something from their personal catastrophe. As Nelson Mandela spoke in accepting the Congressional Gold Medal in 1998, he offered the following. These are his words. Among those we remember today is young Amy Beale. She made our aspirations her own and lost her life in the turmoil of our transition as the new South Africa struggled to be born in the dying moments of apartheid. Through her, our peoples have also shared the pain of confronting a terrible past as we take the path towards the reconciliation and the healing of our nation. End of quote. In 2008, Linda Beale herself received the highest honor given to a non-South African, Companions of the O.R. Tambo, an award named for Oliver Tambo, the South Africa's leader in exile for many years. Linda Beale was raised in Chicago, then completed her education at Whittier College. She moved from a career as Neiman Marcus couture <laughs> manager in Newport Beach to founding and directing the Amy Beale Foundation, attending to basic rights amidst a chronically underserved population in South Africa. She comes to us today from San Marcos, California. Thank you, Linda, for your time today. Okay, we can end now. You've said it all. <laughs> I'm only starting because it's reconciliation, <laughs> reflection, uh-huh. and gratitude. We're going to shower on you on this tribute that we're doing. First, Linda, tell us what was your direct experience of Nelson Mandela? Did you have an opportunity to meet him? I did. I met him formally and, you know, like being introduced several times. And, um, you know, I was in rooms with him a few times. I got to know him very, very well through one of his best friends and comrades through all these years who was in prison with him, a man by the name of Ahmed Kathrata. So sometimes I get mixed up. What has Kathrata said and what has Mandela said? But the first time I met him was standing in front of the prison which he was released from. At that time, it was called Victor Vestere Prison. And it wasn't that he was just released, but he was leading a rally prior to the elections in February of 1994. My daughter, Molly, was with me. We had attended a bit of the trial going on in, in uh, Amy's case, and we just had to get out of there. And, and to see him in life, in front of that prison, actually speaking about his former prison guard and leading a march to a huge soccer stadium, 30 to 40,000 people of, 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 of a rally, a political rally. And mm, there were about 20 white people there. <laughs> and it was like hair-raising. It was to see oppressed people that were really, you, you know, admiring their leader who came out of 27 years in, in prison life to lead them down this road. It, it, was, it was so amazing. I'll never forget it. Um, and then, of course, the second time that I really spent time with him was at the Blair House breakfast before the Congressional Gold Medal. And he put his arms around my daughters and said, hmm, I should tell my grandsons about you. Oh. <laughs> you know, his personal 
magnetic, magnetic, uh, and magnetic, magnetic, words, uh, personality, just, just blew you away. And then one of the most fun times was his 79th birthday party. I had friends with me from St. Louis, Missouri, that uh, wanted to meet Mandela, and, you know, how do you do this? But through a series of events mm. and Mr. Cathrada, we got to go to his 79th birthday party where he interacted with about a 1,000 children. And the Harlem Globetrotters were there. He shot hoops with them. He sang Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star at his birthday, with his birthday cake. And then he had a major luncheon with very elegant people from Cape Town, white ladies dressed in suits, and they all wanted their picture taken with Nelson Mandela. I mean, it's just, it's, as I look back on it, I just feel very honored and privileged to have been to some of these things and a few state dinners and stuff. But um, I... I, I I would never have dreamed this would have happened in my whole life. Well, I I want to quickly say it's it's it was hard to to get those opportunities. I mean, you really had to earn your way into that. I I was hoping I was in South Africa for a time in 1995, and Nelson Mandela was going to be at an environmental conference, and I I told that environmental organizing group I'll volunteer to help with your <laughs> your pulling that conference off. If I, as a volunteer, would you let me get in? I thought that was the only way I was going to be with. In, in any kind of proximity, and that that didn't happen. So, it's folks, it's a it's a real measure of what the Beals have been through, and I've offered that they were able to be availed these many many opportunities to be with magnanimous uh, Madiba, as as the tribal name is, and, and you've heard it many times in the mm. press. Well, you mentioned Ahmed Katrada, uh, another uh, person with among many that you have established a meaningful friendship, and he is in the the brain trust of many of the people that we're going to talk about, and. So but first, the, um, also in the brain trust uh, is the uh, is Desmond Tutu as well, and he has recognized, like Nelson ba- N- Mandela, the Beals. You and Peter, uh, uh, Peter Beal, have also demonstrated your own sense living out Ubuntu uh, with uh, how you've processed your grief. Can you explain to us, Linda Beal, how it was possible for you? to see beyond your immediate grief of losing Amy and putting South Africa's democratic process in your sights? Uh, Well, obviously, Amy was the main inspiration um, at the beginning, probably the inspiration. We loved her. She was an intellectually uh, curious and hardworking young woman, as well as a woman that had a lot of fun and enjoyed life. And her passion evolved over as many, you know, the the decades, uh, the seven, the late seventies, the eighties. People started hearing about apartheid, uh, the the uh, amazing degree of oppression that people were going through in South Africa, and and many people across the globe, and here in the U.S., particularly university students and 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 even high school students were very were beginning to get involved with this as a cause, as a passion. I often ask kids when I speak at schools today, what are your causes and passions? As as someone graduating from college in the 60s, you went through Vietnam War, you went through our civil rights movements, and I'm, I'm not quite sure. we have. There's so much going on in today's world, but these are real passions that people put themselves into, and Amy did intellectually and emotionally, and as she went through this process from the time, I think, when she was really serious, 
as a Stanford student from 85 to 89, she shared her thoughts with us, with her friends. She had free Mandela on her graduation cap in 1999 at wow. Stanford. She wrote postcards to her friends uh, when she started going to South Africa that first summer in 89. 1989 and said free mandela i mean we were we we couldn't help but escape it so we actually knew a great deal about south africa and its long walk to freedom as ironically the movie is coming out right now and and through her um but a really big key to I think our first, yes. you know, our first interviews and in what we're based in Amy, but about six weeks after Amy lost her life in the struggle, she uh, she stimulated a lot of thought and uh, you know interest in South Africa, both good and bad. And we were asked by the city of Cape Town, by the African National Congress, and the University of Western Cape, which was the non-white university where she was working, right. researching on her Fulbright grant for the last 10 months of her life. So we were asked to come to South Africa. I think the city wanted to say, look, here are the Beals. We're a great city. You know, come here, you know. I think the university wanted to, us to understand her academic research and work on the new constitution. And the ANC uh, was ready to take power. They were not yet in power in October of 1993, but they, they knew that the... Uh, the Nationalist Party government of the day really hadn't recognized any of this, so they, I think it kind of thought it would make them look good. So here we were, sort of this Beale family on parade. But I remember uh. that first night we were brought in the hotel. It was dark. The mayor had met us. It was raining at the airport and all this stuff. And then we woke up the next morning, opened our our shades at the hotel, and looked out and saw amazingly clear, bright um, Cape Town and, and the magic, the mother city, the mountain. We were picked up and we were not brought into the beautiful part. We were brought into townships with wow. people living in shacks and no running water. And as we saw this and, and were taken out to shake hands with people, people that, as my son said, Mom, we're white. They hate us. They didn't hate us. They didn't hate us at all. They were climbing all over my son, taking off his Angels baseball cap. And, you know, it was like, how can these people, you know, look at us and not, not feel that rage of oppression? It was, it caught us really off guard, I think, to actually be there among them. So their Ubuntu was coming through. They, yes. You're immersed in this community. They're, rep, they're receiving you. I think they are, that you were known at that point. You were known all over South Africa. Yeah, kind of. That's why Amazing. we were on parade. I mean, we really, yeah, it was a little bit and uncomfortable so at times, actually. So their yeah. Ubuntu is rubbing off on you, and I guess you're, you're getting... Um, you were getting a, a very steady kind of commentary from Amy as she was doing her research. So you were on board with the theoretical, the background, and the uh, the prospects. And there you were immersed now in the township Guguletu where she was killed. I think that was one of the several that you're Kailish and maybe some other ones. Yeah, there. right so, of Cape Town. Yeah, exactly. So um, th- that was uh, to to I think the credit that you're giving them and to your credit, there was a huge interactive aspect going on there. And I guess that is what took hold and gave you a redemptive opportunity uh, hmm. that uh, people probably, none of us can understand, but you can speak so, uh, you can articulate so well. 
which you have. Oh, I, I remember going back to the hotel, and, you know, Amy's boyfriend, Scott, was there uh, from Stanford uh, background, you know, and my son was 16, and my two daughters in their 20s, and Peter. And I just remember, and all these people around us all day, I just remember going back, and I just said, please, no one speak to me. I just have to let it all sink in. And I hit the bed, and I fell so into such a deep sleep. I, I, I think wow. I was processing the whole time. Yes. But when I woke up in the morning, I felt energized and ready to go again. And that has been sort of the cycle of my life going back and forth between South Africa. It's like exhaustion and then this sort of spurt of energy. And it hasn't left. And I am 70 years old now, but I am trying wow. to... <laughs> kind of work it a little differently, well, I at, guess. In some of the interviews that I was looking at, I know you're, um, the late Peter Beale, your husband, was saying he felt, and you too, no doubt, felt connected when you would land in South mm. Africa and you started to feel disconnect when you would take off again. So there was, there was, it was highly charged, all of those missions. And mm. I say that advisedly, um, uh, missions I, um, that you were taking up there. So I'd like, because this is a commemoration, and it's a very complex area to mine, is this legacy of Nelson Mandela. What do you and your brain trust? We talked about a little bit of Ahmed uh, Katrada and mm. uh, Desmond Tutu, many others. What um, uh, amongst the, uh, you keep in your brain trust, what do they, all of you, make of this contradiction of Mandela, the pragmatic and the reconciling politician whose leadership has now it's being, it's been succeeded immediately after Nelson Mandela's one term, which is, that's a whole chapter about his mm -hmm. design yeah. date one term, but being succeeded by a corrupt ruling elite within the African National Congress. That's t t taking up Thabo Mbeki's blind spots and the current president, Jacob Zuma's, mm -hmm. even more questionable practice. What do you make of that, uh, of this prospect that the ANC well, with South know, Africa? there are strategies that uh, were developed by Mandela and his brain trust all over the country, but he, he became the real figurehead and, and the leader. But the interesting thing about the strategy of the ANC is you had the, you know, intellectuals, and I, I would tell you, we met with people, people like Tokyo Saswala, who, who know, knew more about American history than we did, and yet we were history majors at Whittier College, you know, okay. and, and he knew world history. He was in prison for about 17 years. He was on the second wave. But that's what they did in prison. They studied, and they learned, and they processed, and they had time. Uh, Mandela said uh, in one of his books, Dialogues with Himself, to the effect that the cell is an ideal place to learn to know yourself, to search realistically and regularly, to process uh, the process of your own mind and feelings. I mean, there, there were strategies that they worked on while in prison, before prison, and then you have this massive political party, the ANC, of which, you know, the majority, big majority of members have no education they have they had loyalty seen in the spades. white man even Kathrata himself said when we got out of prison and we became the government there were the realtors in Cape Town trying to sell you the big home there were the Mercedes dealers trying to sell you the Mercedes now these people I think the true people I think the Mandela's and the Kathrata's their humility just overwhelmed everybody but there was this whole other layer of people who saw the whites as having this and wanting this. You have a sense of entitlement. The ANC is run as, a, as a, there's a, the president of the ANC. It's a very different system than ours, really. And 
um, Mandela said, I don't want to be president of the ANC. So he declined it. But Thabo remained president of the ANC or took over the presidency of the ANC at the same time he was president of the country. So then you had Zuma, the same thing. So the infighting in the ANC has actually been quite amazing, and there has been a lot of backlash and other things, and the corruption is there. But I also think as much as, you know, you hate to be too cynical, I think there are people who who are still very loyal to the original ideas. Now, now the the idea of the multi-party system you know i think in all tyrannies um there there is a turn towards communism when when in fact my husband always told amy that and we discussed these things with her yes because she says mom and dad you know i consort with communism <laughs> communists and so all of this was you know i think the dynamics are a little uh, overwhelming to some of us uh, who are not, you know, the in into the academic world and, and the the fancy uh, pundits who talk about all these things. But we 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 need to understand that we are not South Africa or we are not this. So the cultural aspects of things, the rise of power, and the you know, the marriage situation, how they treat women. A lot of this is coming from very different cultural background that we come from, and that's actually been a very interesting thing for me to learn and sometimes very hard for me to deal with and how they treated their women. And, and yet oh. many of the politicians in, in the ANC are women, and, and they have also been involved in corruption. And we always think, oh, no, that's the male, you know, as a woman's point of view. But it's a very complicated thing, and I actually think uh, South Africa has done a pretty good job. I, I'm hopeful, you know, I mean, we can be cynical, but I'm hopeful that they have done a good job in, in protecting human rights. And there are a lot of people out there, and they know that people from the outside are looking in. Um, and they have traveled, and their education has... Yeah, uh, so many people are coming from South Africa to get educated here, going there, worldwide. I mean, we have to realize as Americans, we can't look at everything with our own viewpoint. But, but you know, Africa in general has been taken over by seemingly good leaders, you know, and they get their followers, and then, you know, they become dictators, and those stories are are quite common and right. to the culture and the continent and. Yet, you know, I, I, I would err on the legacy of hope. And we're, we're, let's take this up. I just want to let any one of you who's just joined us, my guest, my privilege to have on today this part of the show is Linda Beale. She's the director of the Amy Beale Foundation here on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming in caucusing, canvassing centers all over the world on KUCI.org. And so the Amy Beale Foundation is dealing with those uh, basic human rights in providing for uh, basic health care, basic education, basic some basic social services. You've done an enormous amount of things, and I, I want to say amongst uh, amidst this whole legacy of some of those people that you're able to reach, you can't reach everybody, and you can only do so many programs with the uh, limit of funding and your geographic base, but included in the staff is uh, the transformed EASY, no, fem no femela and mm -hmm. no tobeke, um, 
let's see his name, no tobacco? Penny. Penny, Penny. Penny. yes. Yes, uh, those are two of the four assailants uh, of Amy's, and uh, they are now uh, easy as a sports facilitator at the Amy Beale Foundation, and Mr. Penny is a program manager, mm. and it seamlessly, it seems, or step persistently, there was this transformation of them as perpetrator into contributor because of the, the vehicle you provided in your hopefulness of the, establishing the Amy Beale Foundation there in the Guguletu area. Yes, but, you know, they, they, it's sort of hard to describe. Part of the process was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Exactly. It was set up through the negotiations leading up to the elections as a way for, for the country to look at its national healing and, and deal with, with all of the, uh, the crime that was so-called political. And, and, and it was complicated, but, um, and it didn't serve everything to all the people that people wanted it to serve. But we, we were given the opportunity to uh, participate in the amnesty process as an, you know, it was an institutionalized process. It wasn't a legal court, but it, it had power, certain powers given to it as a, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, this is a nice little dialogue, but it actually did have legal powers to free people, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So right. it was, uh, an opportunity for us to participate in our mentor, Desmond Tutu, as we talk to him about how do you suggest we participate as he was the, you know, the head of the commission. That's right. And he said, you know, just come and tell them about Amy and speak from your heart. And it's like, oh, okay, that's kind of a broad thing. But, you know, we kind of, Peter and I were very prepared the uh, uh, Minister of Justice, Della Omar, that he, who Amy worked with, sent us the original draft of the Parliament's, uh, you know, creating the TRC. So we had several years to think about, okay, if these guys are arrested, they're in prison, they could have been 100 people arrested and in prison in her case, but there are four guys there. They will probably have the opportunity to apply for amnesty. So we thought about it and thought about it, and we realized that, that, it was a process that South Africa wanted and that Amy would approve of. So we always said, you know, whatever the outcome is, we must accept it as right. this process. We, a lot of people said we advocated for their freedom, and we didn't, because there has to be a degree of justice, you know, in, in all kinds of issues like this. But we also knew that they were in their late teens. They were incited by their leadership. They were oppressed people and they were in a way victims as much as we were victims i mean oppression is a combination of of so many things but people that have been oppressed for generations their psyche and they think differently in fact their motto was the three s's uh... to uh... serve your cause uh, seeing your grandparents being beaten by police. You know, you have a cause. What, what are we going to do about this? Serve it. Join that political activism group. And then be ready to suffer. Give up your education. Give up your childhood. And then be prepared to sacrifice your life. But as they did all this, and many others did all this, what happened? They didn't get anywhere. You know, people say, well, you know, Gandhi was important to the country. Yes, but they didn't see it, you know. So... They became 
ready to kill for their cause. And that was another strategy. Their, pol- their political leader said, one settler, one bullet. Right. The settler being the white person. The other strategy is, you know, make the townships ungovernable. So when food trucks came in or government trucks came in, they stoned, they stoned them. And then there came Amy, and she was caught behind, I think it was a Coca-Cola truck, and they stoned and stamped her, seeing her as the white settler, the oppressor. So we did not see it as a personal against Amy, uh-huh. against our daughter. Later they learned of her activity, and part of that, the TRC, as, as, that, as they learned that, because when they were in prison, they'd see us on TV, and they said, they thought we were propaganda. They thought the government was using us as propaganda. And their other comment was, well, they couldn't have been Amy's biological parents because they wouldn't feel this way. So there's a lot of humor yes. in some of this and stuff as we've learned over the years. But and I will say that they actually are the ones, when they got out of prison, Easy and Tobacco came forward and said, you know, we are seeing the same things going on in our townships. We were given amnesty. We were in prison for four years. We thought things had changed. What had changed? There wasn't any opportunity for youth their friends growing up. In fact, in some ways, it had gotten worse. So they started a youth group. Well, Linda, as we're wrapping up yeah. a bit, I know we could go <laughs> know, on. It's a long story. We, but... No, it's a huge and a, it's a remarkable story. And, and so that breaking through, like you did, uh, past what that was considered a propaganda piece, it was the authentic Peter and Linda Beale. Uh, mm. we, we're also going to take stock of the breakthrough that President Obama, in a small gesture, but we're going to hear it reverberate for, for a while to come, his handshake with Raul Castro on Obama's way to the lectern uh, at the tribute this after this morning at the Soweto soccer stadium, where he then after that handshake he did talk about where there still are human rights transgressions where for people of all kinds, and so he he sort of hit that message um, after that symbolic move that's going to be a lot to be spoken for, and I want to close too, with what I thought was a very cogent observation this morning from one of the New York Times readers on the web. And we'll close with this as we're just out of time completely. (laughs) Nelson Mandela, a great man and a loss for South Africa and the world, but perhaps only now will South Africans feel they can vote for parties other than the African National Congress without betraying Madiba. The ANC led the nation through a monumentous and critical change, but has since been rotting from the inside. For years, Mandel's name is the only thing that has lent the ANC an ounce of credibility. So I think we join each other here. Our prayers go out to Mandela's family, who I'm sure struggled with a lot of end-of-life decisions there uh, since since the, the late spring and throughout the summer. And I our secular and uh, not so secular prayers surely go out to South Africa to prevail as as the Beals have over the now over the deprivation with which it contends after the the lengthy stretch of apartheid. So Linda Beal, director of the Amy Beal Foundation, let me just quickly say that for those who really need to know more about what the foundation is about, the Amy Beal it's a website amybeal.co. .za. That's got the most uh, yeah, current I, information. I let the U.S. Foundation website go down because we had sort of a race war on it, and I'm kind of going to redo that, and I'm starting to do some more stuff here. So, Well, um, it's, it's fitting because you want them to be sustaining yeah. the, the partially sustainable organization, and that's the transition you're in the process of making now. So I, I want to thank you so much, Linda, for putting yourself out here one more time uh, with all that you've struggled and with the 
redemptive model that you give to us all. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader this morning. Uh, Well, thank you for your kind words. Thank you. All the best. Everybody, thank you for listening. Oh, oh, oh,